Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to part two with Jamie Good. So we are continuing our adventure, delving a little bit deeper into the wonderful world of wine from a science perspective. So first off, we will be talking about yeasts. They're so important as they are directly responsible for fermentation happening. It was in fact Louis Pasteur, the father of fermentation, who discovered it was the yeasts doing all the work and not just magic back in the 19th century. Now, there are wild yeasts. There are cultured, packaged yeasts. They all do the job, some better than others, some faster than others, and they have the ability to enhance aromas, add texture, dial up certain flavours, dial back, and so much more. So Jamie will talk a little bit more about where yeasts come from and their job in the ferment. We will look at SO2, sulfur dioxide, and um, yeah, you're going to hear me get told off. Not just one time as well. <laughs> I use the word sulfur instead of sulfites. Now, let's all learn a very important lesson about what word to use moving forward. Then we talk about them from a health point of view, what they actually do, how it can be best used. I choose a few other subjects to discuss from Jamie's book that just really interested me. So we will talk about carbonic maceration, semi-carbonic, whole bunch pressing and destemming. So I hope that you find this super interesting and it allows you to see your glass of wine from a slightly different dimension. Now, At the end, I'm going to go into a little nerd out about Costière de Nîmes. This is the most southerly appellation in the Rhone Valley. So if you've never heard of it, you will do after the end of this podcast. Now, I was going to taste some reds from there, but they haven't turned up in time. Boo! So... Watch this space and in the next few weeks I will talk and taste them but over on my Instagram. So that's at eatsleep underscore wine repeat. So follow me over there if you are not doing so already. And don't forget, there's a transcript. So just go to my show notes and you will find the link. Right, handing you over to the safe and scientific hands of Jamie. Now, I found from your book, my favourite takeaway from the book, so I'm ruining it for everyone, now they don't have to buy it, (laughs) is that there are a thousand volatile flavour compounds in wine, and 400 of them come from yeast. I, that for me was shocking. I found that so intriguing. Um, So, shall we talk about yeast? Can we talk about yeast? Yeah, yeasts are really important. Let's face it, when you pick grapes and you, you crush them, or you I know whatever you want to do with them. Yeah. Basically, you're creating a growth medium for yeasts and bacteria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wine is a product of fermentation, as everyone knows, but we forget about that. We, we forget that the, the yeasts have a really important role in shaping the flavour um, of wine. And where does native yeast, wild yeast, come from? So if you go into the vineyard and you sample with these next-generation sequencing technologies that show you actually what's there rather than culturing um, mm-hmm. 
the microbes, the old way of doing things, which was kind of like gave you a sort of partial picture. You'll find that there's quite a lot of yeasts present in the vineyard, including um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the main alcoholic wine yeast. There'll be strains yeah. of that present, mm-hmm. but at very low levels. So when you bring the grapes in, if you mash them up and let fermentation start, you'll have you know various non-Saccharomyces yeasts. So these are yeasts that are able to do some fermentation, but generally not able to ferment all the way through to dryness. So they start the fermentation. Mm-hmm. And as the alcohol levels rise, then they die off and Saccharomyces cerevisiae takes over. And so usually the, the, most of the fermentation is done by a strain of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, in the old days, the, the um, people couldn't find it very easy in the vineyards. So um, some people, even scientific texts, say that cerevisiae isn't present in the vineyard, um, which is not true. It is. It's just yeah. hard to find. So... So fermentation is, is really, when it's done in a wild sort of way, without inoculation, you've got different phases where different species kind of work at different stages, and then cerevisiae takes over and finishes things off. And so those yeasts will have come from the vineyard. There's also a possibility that some of the yeasts that might be flying around the winery could be winery resident yeasts. Mm-hmm. Um, if people have used um, cultured yeasts in the past, then... Um, these might be present still in the winery and still okay. might um, have a role to play in fermenting. Um, there's also barrels might have yeast in them that do the job of fermenting, you know, if you're barrel fermenting. So it's, it's but, but the studies that have been done, a lot of them have reassuringly shown that um, while ferments are done by local resident strains of yeast that are present in the vineyard, and they're moved around by bees and wasps and other insects, and it's a yeah, and, and it might change from year to year depending on the weather as well. So it's quite an interesting picture. Mm. And so in general, the majority, if you were doing wild ferments and using these native yeasts, probably the majority is coming from the, the terroir, the vineyard, and a little bit from the winery. It all depends. It all depends. Um, there's various conflicting studies and a lot depends on what's going on in the winery. I mean, if, obviously, if there's fermentation taking place already there, the yeast from a pre-existing ferment might then kick off the fermentation in a in a new wine that's just been brought in. So, you know, we just don't know. Yeah, okay. And in terms of, like, you, we, we talked about Saccharomyces cerevisiae is our main alcoholic yeast, and it's much stronger. Um, how does temperatures affect those slightly weaker, maybe more natural yeasts or native yeasts? Well, those guys, most of them are only going to be in a job for a few days, you know, mm-hmm. because they, they, they can't cope with the, the alcohol yeah. levels. Um, mm-hmm. As they rise, they'll die off. Um, but they do an important job. And also the dynamics of the fermentation is quite important. You know, how fast it starts off. Um, you, you mentioned temperature. Temperature is obviously going to be a factor. Um, yeah. The other thing is that yeasts like to have oxygen. Um, so having oxygen in the ferments kind of really good to help yeasts um, build up their cell walls and to you know to be robust and to complete fermentation to dryness um so mm-hmm. really it's, it's you're trying to make them comfortable you're trying to give them adequate nutrients you're trying to um let them do their job and sort of manage it so that the fermentation proceeds um without getting stuck or yeah. it doesn't get sluggish you know you really it really it's a question of hoping that everything just keeps going and yeah. you end up with a dry wine well, what are your thoughts on using non-Saccharomyces yeasts in 
commercial winemaking? Is it a risk worth taking? What do you think from going to all these different wineries, tasting so many wines, some natural, some very minimal intervention, some very commercial? What What are your thoughts? Yes. So if you want to mimic a wild fermentation, but you don't want the risk, what you can do is you can start using um, non-saccharomyces yeast that have been cultured. Now they're they're effectively so so often you do what's um, a co-inoculation, mm. or you might do sequential inoculation. And so the co-inoculation, you'd be putting some cerevisiae in there with the non-sacs, but you'd weight it in terms of the the ratio so that the non-sacs would be in the abundance to begin with, and then the cerevisiae would take over after a few mm. days. Okay. And the sequential is where you start off with these non-saccharomyces yeasts. And then you add your cultured Saccharomyces cerevisiae um, to then, you know, day four or something to then finish off the fermentation. So this could be a way of improving texture and mouthfeel and adding a bit of complexity. And that's quite interesting. The other form of adding yeast and bacteria is, is a protocol called bioprotection. And so what you're doing is you're adding yeast and bacteria to kind of populate the must without starting fermentation. So effectively, you're taking away the ecological niche that the bad things would take you know and you, it allows you to to vinify without sulfites but to have some degree of safety um so mm. that's all in the book as well it's kind of interesting it's a new thing and yeah. so a lot of commercial when you find no added sulfites wines now um, available commercially um so many of those will will have had this bioprotection protocol uh, which means that you know you can have nice clean no added sulfites wines even at even you know at supermarket level and that's quite interesting. So it, funny enough, after I read about that section, I was chatting with Fergus Elias, my winemaker at Balfour, and he was saying that he used some of those non-saccharomyces yeasts for his late harvest wine that they only ever made once many, many years ago. And it was specifically for that bioprotection. So I think the whole thing is fascinating. In my head, I was like, oh, if you're a commercial winemaker, you just use the standard strain. And it's just fascinating all these brand new um, yeast strains that have all these different potential and can do different things. And the other thing I learned from now working so closely with a winery is that I just, I never knew, so I share this with everyone listening, that you can re-inoculate a tank three times if you want. You can start with, you know, the original strain and then put something in later and then a few days later throw in something else. And then that way, again, my winemaker was explaining to me, you can focus on texture from one side. Then you can really focus on, you know, bringing, elevating those aromatics. And so you can really highlight what those grapes and what those compounds um, are already there and you can elevate all that. I think that's quite fascinating, to be honest. Mm. I I am now I think becoming a bit of a a yeast geek just because I had no idea how how interesting it was and how how different the flavors can be what you can what you can do with yeasts I think mm. more importantly mm. um so adding sulfur at crushing can really slant things in favor of Saccharomyces cerevisiae just just an interjection here Ooh. um yes um can we not mistake sulfur and sulfites because this is something that's done in the wine world all the time and okay. nobody adds sulfur you add sulfites sulfur mm. is the element so that's okay. the yellow stuff yeah yes and what we're talking about is sulfur dioxide also known as sulfites <sighs> do you know and, what? Uh, bad and i think yes. it's just important i think it's important no, just to so keep right. that distinction you know yeah 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 because I, I noticed one retailer one retailer has even been saying that they're, they're describing their wines as no added sulfur. And it's like, this is not true. It's sulfites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, every day is a school day. I have learned something. 
that's such a valid point because as you said I actually would never have even thought about that thank you for bringing that to my attention so Adding sulfites, everybody, when you're crushing, uh, yeah. this can really encourage your Saccharomyces officiae. Yes. Now, is this something that is very old science, or has there been a much greater understanding of that recently? No, this is just something that's been done in winemaking for a long time. You, a little bit of a sulfite add at crushing kind of puts off all the bacteria and the mm. wild yeast strains, but it allows the cerevisiae to do its thing. So it's just a way of um, just giving yourself a little bit of safety at the beginning of fermentation. Yeah, okay. That'll take me now to sulfur dioxide, SO2, which is an antimicrobial agent. It is there, as you just said, to protect from oxygen. But of course, it's this thing that everybody wants to hate or loves to hate. So can we go in a bit more detail? What What's your thoughts from a health perspective of sulfur dioxide? Um, it's harmless. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you're asthmatic. If you're seriously asthmatic, then it can be problematic, but for everyone else, it's totally harmless. Okay, there you go, done. But the levels used in wine, they're tightly regulated, so... Well, absolutely. To be honest, you know, we... I think, what what does it say in your book? It has to be less than 200 milligrams per litre or parts per million. Uh, that, uh, that's absolutely the maximum, I think, in EU, or is it a bit less? Yeah, you would, you, basically, you, most wines you're going to get, like, total SO2 is going to be max around 80 to 100. Mm-hmm. And a lot will be lower than that. Well, actually, you mentioned total SO2. So could you possibly explain to people, now this is getting a little bit wine geeky here, the difference between free and total sulfur? Because this is discussed very often. Yeah, um, so total SO2 is the amount of SO2 present in the wine. Um, mm-hmm. Some of it is bound. Um, yes. It's bound up. So it's not going to be able to be free to do its job. And some of it's free, which means it's doing its job. And really the ideal... You know, a sign of good winemaking is to have a high ratio of free to total. Mm-hmm. So total is the free plus the bound. So it's everything. Free is like um, what you need to do the job. So generally speaking, say, for instance, the commercial white wine, you'd want the free to be above 10. Okay, yeah. um, once it goes below, below 10, this is just a rule of thumb, you might start seeing some signs of oxidation. So okay. a typical white commercial white wine might be, you know, total 60 free. 30 and that's like safest houses you know that and it's a good ratio that's a good ratio of free to total but you know there's lots of things that can bind up sulfites and once they start dropping then you can run into trouble yeah 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 yeah. and there are apparently tricks of being i think you were saying in the book you could be very clever with your sulfur usage so it is about getting that ratio of free to bound sulfur you know get the hot get the free sulfur much higher and that's by i think clean making sure you have clean grapes and filtering yeah. properly having a clean winery and controlling the turbidity and these kind of things right yeah yeah, yeah. that's there's lots of it's, it's just about you know good and again winemaking yeah yeah we we talked earlier about bretomyces the higher the ph the more likely that can occur well again the lower the ph the better the use of sulfur, right? So you can use less. So yeah, more of the sulfites, sulfites, not sulfur. Oh no! Will be gonna... present. You know that you have a better ratio, and yeah. that free fraction, more yeah. of it's going to be in what's called the molecular fraction, which is the stuff yeah. that really does the job. So that's why working with low pH is a lot easier in terms of hygiene than working with high pH. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. But again, I think the takeaway for everyone here is you shouldn't worry too much about sulfites. 
One of the other things I found really interesting in your book, and of course, this is me just pulling things out. There's so much in your book for winemaking, but I really love the discussions that you had on using whole bunches for fermentation as opposed to obviously de-stemming. So with whole bunch fermentation, how does the type of stem affect things? It just seems you were talked a lot about from different places in the world and winemakers having such different opinions on whether they should do a whole bunch fermentation or de-stem. So what, what have you picked up from going to all these wineries? Um, it's just that I think that, that one of the myths is this idea that you have to have lignified stems in order to be able to use whole bunches. Okay. I think that's what I've picked up from speaking to lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can have bright green fluorescent stems and if you handle them really carefully you can use whole bunches in fermentations mm-hmm. so that's that's one of the myths i think i think that a lot of it's about having really healthy grapes but just managing the ferment um, very carefully if you start punching down whole bunch ferments well it's very hard to do by hand it's uh, you probably need a, one of those hydraulic punch down things if you start doing that then you like to extract all the green characters from the stems, which is not mm-hmm. ideal. But I think that I think whole bunch is such an interesting area because you know there's so much discussion about it, which grape varieties it works with, how best to do it, and then you've got this overlap between whole bunch and carbonic maceration as well, which is another fascinating discussion. So there's so many choices once you start thinking about whole bunches in winemaking. Um, you know, and the other thing is when you make, if you, if you say a wine is 30% whole bunch, does that mean a third of the ferments were 100% whole bunch? Or did all the ferments have a little bit of whole bunch at the bottom and then de-stem berries on top? Um, so these sorts of discussions are really interesting. Mm, well, you, you just touched on as well, carbonic maceration, which obviously will happen with whole bunches. Could you talk to people from your point of view or explain what is carbonic maceration and also what is semi-carbonic as well? Because <laughs> there's so many options. True carbonic is when you stuff some grapes, whole bunch, into a tank and you leave them undisturbed and an intracellular um, enzymatic process takes place, which mm-hmm. produces some alcohol. So some of the sugars converted to alcohol. It converts the malolactic acid as well. So, um, and it extracts a bit of color from the skins. And if you taste those grapes after say ten days, they'll be prickly and um, you know, they have a prickle to them. And and mm-hmm. then if you press them after like ten, twelve days, then you'll have some juice released that's got sugar in still. So the fermentation will then take place the alcoholic fermentation will will um, finish off there. Um, so the carbonic, it, what it does is it, it produces quite interesting compounds that wouldn't be produced in a regular fermentation. Yeah. And it's got a lot of use. And, and semi-carbonic is where you, you're doing a bit of carbonic at the same time as some alcoholic fermentation. So for instance, you might have juice at the bottom of the tank that's doing um, where the grapes have been you know, crushed a bit at the bottom and that's a regular alcoholic fermentation takes place there while there's some carbonic taking place further up in the tank. Yeah. So that's a semi-carbonic or semi-carbonic might be where you you foot tread the whole bunches a little bit first and release some juice and then the fermentation takes place or you start off carbonic and then you, you crush and foot tread and <laughs> continue the fermentation, you know, like a normal red wine fermentation yeah, or you might yeah. even press at that stage and and separate the skins from the juice and finish the fermentation off the skins. So there's lots of things you can do. And depending on the degree of carbonic, it depends how much of these sort of very interesting fruity 
um, aromatics you get from the the process. Well, of course, for anybody listening, I think Beaujolais is the the most famous region that does carbonic maceration. Um, young Riocas, they used to. Is that still a thing? That is that still happening in Rioja? Well, carbonic. Maybe. Yeah, was that still? Um, a thing? Not really. No, some people it used still, to be. Some people might be doing it, um, yeah. but generally speaking, I think it's the old sort of whole cluster fermentations of old really died out quite a while ago. In, um, yeah, oh, when I first started getting into wine. It, people, you would hear it all the time, and now I don't think I've heard of one producer in Rioja doing it. Anywhere else in the world that really em- specifically embraces carbonic? Well, anywhere that's where Pinot Noir is being made, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Rhone, the Rhone, the Rhone is where it got invented in the Rhone. Did it? Yes. Oh. Okay. A guy called I've... Michael Flanzi, and I think 1934 was the one who came up with a protocol for carbonic. I think people have been doing it in the past, you know, but not knowing exactly what they've been doing. It's, it's, in the, it's very common to have whole mm-hmm. bunch of fermentations, but this is the specific focus on carbonic where you're just trying to let that take place without any alcoholic fermentation. Mm, okay, there we go. Started in the Rhone. Okay, I had no idea. But you mentioned like Pinot Noir. I think that's actually, just takes me to that question, why is whole bunch fermentation, whole bunches often associated with Pinot Noir, why that specific grape compared to other grapes of the world? It just works well. It works well. Because it's um, lighter skinned and fruitier style without as aggressive tannins. Is that perhaps why? Well, I'd, I'd say not so much carbonic, but a whole bunch seems to yes, whole bunch, give yeah. structure and freshness to Pinot um, in a way that a Syrah does well with a whole bunch as well. Mm, okay. Cool climate Syrah. Syrah. Yeah, okay. And then from from talking with winemakers, do you, I mean, do you think there's more of a lean to reintroducing stems? If they do de-stem at the bottom, at the top, in layers, their trends, like what have you found? Because as you mentioned, there's so many different ways when you're doing your fermentation, not just carbonic or semi-carbonic or a whole bunch or de-stem, but what do you do with the stems as well? And how can that work with your ferment? How does it benefit? What have you learned there? Yeah, no, it's it, so once you de-stem, you can put the stems back. I know some people who take the stems outside and ripen them more, or use a flamethrower, and you know, and then what? add them back to the ferment. But this, okay. this is kind of niche, you know. I, I don't think this. <laughs> I don't. Th- you, the benefit of whole bunch is that it's whole right. bunch, and right. it's not necessarily the presence of stems that's making the yeah. difference. It's the fact that it's whole bunch. The stems happen to be there, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that that. Yeah, it's not that common to start adding stems back. Okay, all right. But I suppose the benefit of having stems is that you can drain the juice away. I think maybe it can act as a net. So perhaps you can, when you take away the juice, it can be cleaner. It can act as a filtration. Am I right in thinking that? Partially, yeah. And it changes the fermentation dynamics as well, having the stems in the, having the whole bunches there present in the ferment. One thing you have to be careful of is if you're not careful, you can end up pockets of air in the ferment and that can um, create VA issues. Uh, So you have to be quite careful not to have any pockets of air in the ferment where bacteria can thrive because bacteria like oxygen and if they have oxygen, they'll grow. That's why you keep caps wet 
stop mm-hmm. bacteria growing in them. Mm. I think I've written down as well that also having stems, it can absorb colour. So that's something that perhaps might be a negative with Pinot Noir, which is a lighter skin anyway, so that might not be great. And it can raise the pH. And as we've talked about, the pH, higher pH, you might get Brettomyces. So it's just, it's quite interesting. But you can also, if you've got the stems, you can lower the temperature. So this, I, I think what I've learned from your from reading your book is that first of all there's no right or wrong every winemaker is going to make different decisions based on what they want but also what their winery gives them or what their grapes give them should I say um but everything will just be nuances something slightly different everywhere in the world right Mm. it's a never-ending game really yeah yeah with no answer (laughs) (laughs) keeps me in business there we go exactly it does it gives you something to do so i just obviously for everybody go and grab this book and you can learn everything about viticulture and viniculture what was actually i've only picked out a few things that i loved from this book but for you what's the most what was the most fascinating thing writing about in this book terroir oh how funny (laughs) do you mean the one thing that i didn't allow you to talk about yes (laughs) no i think it's all interesting I think what's interesting is how it all works together. You know, you've got mm-hmm. you've got from plant biology to microbiology to perception to chemistry, all these things all work together. And wine has so many elements to it. That I think it's fascinating. Now, to finish off, what have you been drinking recently that has impressed you wine-wise, just for some people maybe to go out and grab some bottles that you, you would recommend? What's been some of your favourite this year? So... I've just come back from a trip to Costier de Nîmes, which is the most southerly of the Rhone Appalachians. Yeah. And I think if you can get yourself a bottle of red Costier de Nîmes, Mm -hmm. first of all, it's consistently good. Really, really impressive. I just think it's massively underrated. These are wines that often have this lovely freshness. These are red wines that often have freshness. They have a little slight meatiness. They have Mm -hmm. a touch of olive, floral cherry fruit. Um, the supple, there's nice mouthfeel. I was really impressed by a lot of the wines that I found. So my tip would be to go to um, the local wine shop and see if they've got anything from Costier de Nîmes. Okay. I don't think, it's funny, isn't it? Because this is a region that is not as well known. You know, Provence gets all the attention. And funny enough, Costier de Nîmes does some lovely rosés as well in a similar style. So I think I'm glad you've touched on Costier de Nîmes because I've never, ever mentioned this region at all. So it's something then probably new for, for everybody to check out and try. So, okay, cool. There we go. Lovely. Now, which other books do people need to find out? We've got Wine Science, Flawless... What's your other books? Authentic Wine. This is yeah. a natural wine. That's 10 years old now, but um, it's just been translated to Spanish, an updated version. Got translated. Ah, muy bien. Fantástico. Okay. Um, the latest one is Regenerative Viticulture. Ah, very important. That's kind of geeky. It's kind of geeky. It's a, the first book on this very new way of running vineyards. And the terroir and taking care of the soils yeah. and uh, leaving it better than where you found it, right? Yep. Lovely. Thank you, Jamie. I have enjoyed just listening to you wine geek out and it's actually been extra useful reading the book and then having you uh, reiterate it and talk about it from hearing it and reading it. It's been perfect. So I appreciate that. Everyone go and buy the book. And thank you, Jamie. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Take care of yourself. So as we finish with Jamie, his mention of Costiers de Nîmes has inspired this little part at the end. So 
This is a satellite region on the Rhone Valley and it's not so well known. So I want to talk about it, <laughs> of course. So this is just a very quick breakdown of what is the most southerly wine region in the Rhone Valley. So this is a place with 2,000 years of history and it dates back to the Roman times. But bringing it a little bit further to current times... In the 1950s, it was originally called Costières de Garde, as it was part of the French department Garde, which is just north and east of Montpellier, and it runs east to Avignon. So for this reason, it was linked to the Languedoc-Roussillon wine region on the French coast. However, it shares much more similarities with its Rhone brothers and sisters. So as of 1989... It was introduced into the Rhone Valley and it has been renamed Costier de Nîmes, uh, with the town Nîmes found in the northwest part of this region. So, Costier de Nîmes is not Languedoc, it's not Provence, but it's smack bang right in the middle of the two, with some places just 10 kilometres from the sea. So, this is a Mediterranean climate, but with lots of maritime influence. Now, what it shares with the Rhone, and more famously known, the wine region Chateauneuf de Pape, is pebbles, the stones and the soils. So, it has these raised terraces of pebbles that were deposited by the Rhone and the Durance rivers about one to three million years ago. So, you know, just a blink of an eye in geology terms. Now, they're called Villafrancian soils. And for all you soil geeks out there, like Jamie, soil fact, this region has more of these soils than anywhere else in the Rhone. Now, along with the sea breezes and also the influence of those stones that can increase the temperatures between day and night and the famous mistral wind which comes down from the north, although it's actually not as strong in this place as it is, for example, in Chateauneuf-de-Pape, they make the wines lovely and fresh. Just think of juicy, approachable, sun-kissed wines. So they have a very similar price point to Cote de Rhone. Now, grape varieties are what you find in the Rhone Valley. So Grenache, Syrah and Mourvedre, followed by Carignan and Sanso. So they are the black-skinned varieties. And in terms of whites, Grenache Blanc, Roussan, Marsan, with a little bit of Bourbolink, Claret, Vermentino and Viognier. Now, 43% of the wine produced is red. You get 48% of rosé and then just 8% is white. Now, 40% of their wines produced there are exported. So for those of you listening, you should hopefully be able to get your hands on a bottle. Now, I'm going to finish off with a wine quote taken from Jamie's third edition wine science book. We talked about aromas of wine in part one and we heard that it is in fact terroir, you know, the sense of place, soil, climate aspect, that is what calls Jamie's interest the most. So in a beautiful attempt of cross-referencing, Jamie quotes Jamie Busby, who is a Scotsman who was famous for bringing vines across to Australia. So do look him up. Very, very famous and well worth knowing him. And he put together a book called A Treatise on the Culture of the Vine and the Art of Making Wine. And in there, he says, The vine may be cultivated advantageously in the great variety of soils. The sandy soil will, in general, produce a delicate wine. The calcareous soil, a spiritous wine. The decomposed granite, a brisk wine. 
Well, I think the whole thing is certainly fascinating, what soil can do to the flavours of wine. And actually, if you find that interesting yourself, check out Chili's Dr. Terroir, Dr. Pedro Parra. He can guess soil types based on the wine that lands on his tongue. But for now, a sneak peek into next week. I'm so excited to bring you the first part of my chat with one of my favourite women in wine, Dr. Laura Catena, who just won this year the 2022 Women of Wine Award by the drinks business, and quite rightly so. She and her father, which you will learn about across the two episodes, are the pioneers of high-altitude Malbec and insane research on, dare I say, soils. <laughs> Again, Catena Zapata is one of the most important wine producers of Argentina, and Laura speaks just so beautifully about her beloved land and, of course, Malbec. So find yourself a bottle of Catena Malbec if you can. Get a steak in the fridge, of course, and I'll meet you back here next week. Don't forget to subscribe, share, like this podcast. Please leave a comment on the app that you are listening to. And until next week, cheers to you.